You can be seated. We're carrying on in uh, Revelation again. Um, Revelation isn't the easiest book to understand, is it? <laughs> and you know, the Bible talks about that some things are hard to understand. The Apostle Peter said that. He said it about Paul's writings. And I was musing about that uh, this, this past week, and I was thinking, I bet if Peter had lived after Revelation was written, that he would have said it about <laughs> some of John's writings, too. <laughs> Because these are things that are difficult to understand. And even an apostle would say that. But we need to come at those things that are hard to understand with an endeavor to understand them and to interpret them according to the analogy of the faith. The things that are clear in Scripture, as long as we have those as a foundation. That's why our catechism is so important as we lay a foundation of truths that are clearly set forth in, set forth in the Scripture then we have that foundation and we can work from that foundation when we come to difficult passages and we won't go off with some wild interpretation that will bring some heresy into the, the church or into our lives. But uh, we, we honor God when we work hard on hard passages. We don't say, oh, I can't understand that. I'm not going to pay any attention to that. No, we have to, we have to be engaged with the whole word of God and want to know all the things and ask him to help us. So last week, we got to Revelation 7. We covered about half of it. And, you know, I do, I, I hesitate sometimes to do long reviews, but where this is difficult material, I, I want to have a fairly long review again, not as long as last week, but fairly long, just to go back over what we did look at last week. So I want to remind you what's going on to this point in Revelation. First of all, overall, the Lord is showing the Apostle John a vision of the future. Things that, as he said, were shortly to take place. And John is supposed to pass these along to the church in his day, as always was done, right? When the prophet received prophecy, he would give it to the people in his day, and it applied to them in their day. But it also had implications and even prophecies that went far into the future. The things that John sees in this vision were not actually happening when John saw them. John isn't watching history unfold from heaven's perspective. He's watching what is going to happen in the future unfold from heaven's perspective, what it looks like from heaven's side of those things. And the interesting thing is that these were visions of things that, from heaven's perspective and, and that he, he was shown them in symbols because we can't see God. And so it had to be shown with symbols of things that represent things, that represent God and, and such things. And sometimes the angels or the people in the vision would step out of the vision and come and talk to John, which is kind of interesting because these aren't events of history, things that were actually happening. They're visions. And a person in the vision would come and and, and talk to him about it. And we have, it's not just in Revelation, we have that back in Ezekiel and places like that. And sometimes they come and ask a question, you know, to the person that's seeing the vision. They say, you know, what, what's this over here? And he says, I don't know, you know, tell me. And, and then they tell him. It's, it's just a way of highlighting something that they need to see. Part of the vision comes and talks to them about the vision. It's very, very interesting. Uh, God was given this vision, or He has given us this vision to provide hope and encouragement 
to the church. We have seen that these visions showed that it was God's plan that very hard things would happen. Very hard things were going to come upon Israel and even things that would affect the believers. That there would be these martyrs that we saw, like in the, um, in the sixth seal when we were looking at, uh, or no, sorry, the fifth seal was the martyrs, that when we were looking in uh, chapter 6. The vision shows, though, the way it encourages us is it shows that everything, including the hard things, are part of God's design. It was his seals of his scroll, of his decree, that are being opened and that are bringing forth, along with the gospel, things like famine, division, uh, and death. So uh, he's shown to be on the throne, having a plan, put into the hands of Christ the mediator who has prevailed and who has overcome that he might open the scroll and bring forth this plan, this, this kingdom of righteousness. So this is the way that, uh, that, that the gospel comes forth. And we see that, don't we? What we saw in chapter 6, that wherever the gospel goes, Jesus says, I didn't come to bring peace but a sword. With the gospel, he actually sends division, and that division is part of the working of his kingdom to stir up things and to make the gospel, those that embrace it, have to really embrace it. It makes others see the reality of it. There's all kinds of, we don't even know all the interworkings, but we see certain things. Seeing that God planned it helps us prepare for it so that we don't say, oh, everything's gone wrong. Jesus came and the kingdom was supposed to be here and everything was supposed to be sweet. It was all supposed to be flowers and we've got all this trouble. We see, no, this is how God planned it. All this stuff, the destruction of Jerusalem, all of these things was his very exact plan being unfolded. And we can apply that to whatever's happening in any time in history. So what John saw in chapter 6 could apply to almost any time in the history of the church. That's pretty evident because people will take that passage and say, oh, this is, and they'll, they'll identify it with something that's going on in their day, you know, or something that went on at a certain time in history. We, we see that you know, all the time. The gospel and disturbances come together. But I have suggested that what John speaks of here pertains to his own day when the gospel first went out after Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection and ascension. What we saw in chapter 6 is identical with what Jesus described in Matthew 24, Luke 21, and Mark 13. Those three uh, gospel narratives that led the things that led to the destruction of Jerusalem, the temple on earth, in 70 AD. I'm more and more uh, leaning in that direction on things, though it can be interpreted other ways. But John, I believe, was living, he def, this is definitely true, he was living in the middle of times of great tribulation. There is no doubt whatsoever about that. Because uh, it's a time very much like Jesus described in Matthew 24, 21 with these words. For then there will be great tribulation such has not been since the beginning of the world until this time, no, nor ever shall be. The times that John wrote this and the times that came just after he wrote this were times of great tribulation. Because John himself had been exiled to a remote island because of his faith. James, Peter, John, 
Paul had all been executed. Think about that. These were faithful men that were leaders in the church, and they were killed by their enemies. And probably most of the other apostles, as far as we know from history, had been slaughtered for their faith, and many other believers had also been killed. It wasn't just them. It was other believers, too. The whole church of Christ was suffering, both Jewish believers as well as Gentile believers under the hand of the unbelieving Jews, and now also the Romans who were coming after both Jews and Christians. So you had Jews that had been killing Christians. Then you had Romans that came and killed both Jews and Christians. They didn't really look at them as, as distinct. They just saw the church as kind of a sect of the Jews. So the Jewish wars were underway. They were beginning at this time. And many, as John was writing these things, I believe, and, and many believers had died. We saw that with the fifth seal open in Revelation 6-9. And the six seals were of things that John and the church of his day were actually in the middle of experiencing. Those, those preliminary seals opening the scroll. But in chapter 7, John saw in the vision that between the sixth and seventh seal, that God stopped everything. He stopped the judgment that was getting ready to come forth, the trumpet judgments that were going to come forth in the seventh seal. He put a pause on until he sealed 144,000 believing Jews in Jerusalem. We looked at this last week for our encouragement. This vision showed how the Lord held back the worst of the judgment coming upon Jerusalem that these believing Jews might be spared. They had already suffered under much of the judgment that had already fallen, but there was much worse thing, much worse things were going to come forth, and they were, uh, these were spared from those worse things that would have completely wiped them out. In Acts 21.20, we're told that there were already tens of thousands of Jews at Jerusalem that had believed. When Paul went up there and he spoke to the, uh, at a presbytery meeting in Jerusalem as the elders gathered together, uh, the presbyters there were giving him advice. And as they were talking about things, one of the things they said is, you see, brother, how many myriads, myriad is 10,000, of Jews there are who have believed here at Jerusalem. There are tens of thousands who have believed here. So in the terrible siege of Jerusalem that was already starting to happen when John had this vision, the whole city was going to be destroyed in that siege in 70 AD. Josephus, who lived in these days, wrote that 1.1 million Jews perished by the end of that siege. And he reported that 97,000 who had survived were taken as slaves by their Roman conquerors. The whole city was destroyed. But in Matthew 24 and Luke 21, Jesus had told his followers that when they saw Jerusalem, after they saw Jerusalem surrounded by their enemies, and when they saw a sacrifice of abomination brought into the temple, they should flee to the mountains that they might be spared. He said, don't even get anything, just go immediately, flee to the mountains. And, but how could they when the city was under siege? Well, what happened in history, we're told in history books, that there was a time when the Romans withdrew. The Christians, remembering what Jesus said, fled to the mountains. 
And we have historical accounts of that, that they went to Pella, a place in the mountains. Many of them went there. Some may have gone other places that had relatives or things like that. As we saw last week, Revelation 7, 1 through 8, probably, I don't say definitely, but it certainly fits this time. But whether it is of this or a similar time at another time in history, it shows us what we need to take away from this is God's special care of his church. Because in the midst of all of this commotion that God sent, he seals off. He seals the people of his, that he wants to preserve so that the church would continue. There were important leaders and things at Jerusalem. Many of them had already been killed. It's not like he saves them all. But he preserved. He didn't let them all be uttered. If the whole church at Jerusalem, the myriads there, had just been wiped out, it would have been a devastating blow to the church and its future and its leadership. Um, we might say it would not have gone on. Yeah, we can't say that. There were, Gentile, I mean, there were people around the world that were, were believing at this time. But the idea is that God was not letting these things harm his church. He was preserving it carefully, saving these people, marking them out from this destruction that would come. So um, this, is, this is what is going on here in uh, God's special care of the church. We saw how he deliberately held off the winds of judgment that were coming with the trumpets that were to come until those who were spared could be marked out and sealed. So it's a great picture. Now, some interpreters see this as speaking of later times in history, and some see it as speaking of times that are future to us. You know, in a way, we don't have to worry about that to get the message because God does the same thing in those other periods. He spares his church and all those other periods, whether it's the first one here or later ones, first one after Jesus uh, ascended or later ones, it shows God's special preservation. Well, let me read it to you again. Revelation 7, 1 through 8, I'm going to read that again, and then I'm going to go on and read the rest of the chapter. We did that last week as well, the part that we're looking at today, which is uh, verses 9 through 17. So here is the word of God. Revelation 7, 1 through 17. After these things, John says, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth. And you think this is, uh, could also be the land, right? The earth and land, it could be translated either way. So the land of Israel here, uh, standing at the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth, on the sea or on any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God. And he cried with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees till we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of those who were sealed. 144,000 of all the tribes of the children of Israel were sealed. Of the tribe of Judah, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Reuben, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Gad, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Asher, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Simeon, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Levi, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Issachar, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Joseph, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Benjamin, 12,000 were sealed. 
We can read that off quickly, can't we? But think about that. God was sparing important people in his church that were going to minister to his people. Okay, now let's go on to the part we're looking at this week. Verse 9. After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude, which no one could number, of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels stood around the throne, and the elders and the four living creatures, and fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom, thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders answered, saying to me, Who are these arrayed in white robes, and where do they come from? And I said to him, Sir, you know. So he said to me, These are the ones who came out of the great tribulation and washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will dwell among them. They shall neither hunger any more nor thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them nor any heat. For the Lamb who is in the midst of the throne will shepherd them and lead them into to fountains of living waters or living fountains of waters. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And there we end the reading of God's word. May he add his blessing to it as we now consider these things. I just want to mention that last part. We sang some of that today in the Psalms, didn't we? About the sun not striking them, all of those kind of things. It's, uh, it's talking about God looking after his people, taking care of them, preserving them. So you see first in this reading how the Lord preserves his church. Revelation 7, 1 through 8, setting the seal on these ones to, to spare. And second, in Revelation 7, 9 through 17, you see how the church that has been preserved worships him. That's verses 9 through 17. Let me unpack the second part. Verse 9 begins with the words of John, After these things I looked. So after seeing the judgment held back for a moment, just for a time, it wasn't completely not to ever come, it was just held back until these people could be made, brought to safety. 144,000 could be sealed. John sees this great multitude. That cannot be numbered. Of course, there's talk about, you know, who is, is this the same 144,000? Is this a different group? What is this? Well, I think it's the church that's described here for sure. The church is said in verse 9 to be a great multitude which no one could number of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues. So it's a vision of the whole church at that time worshiping God. Now, the gospel has spread into all the world. Of course, this was still yet future to John, slightly future to him, I think. But the gospel has spread into the whole world by the time of Revelation, when it was written. Even if you believe, as I do, that it, or I'm inclined to believe that it was written um, before 70 AD. Because even as early as AD 60, the Apostle Paul could say to the Colossians, that the gospel, Colossians 1, 6, has come to you as it has also in all the world and is bringing forth fruit as it has also among you since the days you heard and knew the grace of God and truth. There's a stark contrast from the Old Covenant. Under the Old Covenant, 
God had restricted his gospel, his word, his call to one nation. But now that Christ was preached, he had ordained that he should be preached to all nations and the nations were coming to God and entering the kingdom of God. And there were already more than could be counted. All over the place, there were believers around the world. This surely includes those from Israel who believed among those that are the part of the great multitude. Certainly the 144,000 that were sealed that they might survive the siege in Jerusalem would be among these. Jerusalem was the principal city where the church had begun. And these 144,000 were some of its key leaders. But now the gospel had taken root among other nations and this great multitude is all worshiping God in their places. They weren't all together in one place, but their worship all comes up to one place. It all comes up to the throne of heaven where God is. So here they are, more than could be counted. Great multitude before God. Look at how John describes them. First, he tells us what he sees. They are standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes with palm branches in their hands. This, of course, is the throne that we've been seeing for several chapters now, where the Lord God of the Creator of heaven and earth sits, the Father who rules over all. And it's showing that He's the one who rules. Okay, He's on the throne. And it is the Lamb that is seen that we have seen before, which represents the Lord Jesus Christ, who is sacrificed as a lamb. The lambs were offered for sin. He's sacrificed for our sin, for his people. So they're standing before God the Father and God the Son, these, uh, the, these worshipers who redeem them. We come standing before God to, to praise him, to worship him, to call on his name, and it, it, our, our worship goes up to heaven. They're appearing before the Father through Jesus Christ who died as a lamb, sacrifice for sin that they might be forgiven through the faith in him that's why we worship because we've been redeemed by the by the lamb the church is said to come before god and to stand before him when we gather and in this in a sense we are before him all the time but it's especially when we gather together in the assembly they're said to be clothed with white robes and to be holding palm branches the white robes show that they have been justified by Christ, making them pure to stand before God, clothed in His righteousness. We are justified, brothers and sisters. Our sins are forgiven. We've been washed and also cleansed by His Spirit, transforming us from defilement that we might be able to live for God, that we might be able to repent of our sins and follow the Lamb. White is also the color of those who are victorious, victorious over sin by His grace. The palm branches are symbols of festive joy, especially the joy of those who have conquered, who have overcome. We saw both of these symbols earlier in Revelation of the church, even as that which was promised to some of the seven churches, to the overcomers in those churches. This is the church before God as redeemed by Christ, praising him. Second, he tells us what he hears. What does he hear from them? Loud praise. Verse 10 says, And crying out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God, 
who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So they're praising as we do. Whenever we gather together, we praise God for saving us. As a church, the church has done this ever since Christ finished his saving work and came and met in that upper room with the apostles and said um, that uh, peace be to you. He declared peace to them because, by the cross and sent them out. The true church does not find salvation in their own works or their own rituals or any such thing. They trust in God and in the Lamb to save them. Now that brings a question. What about you? Are you actually trusting in God and the Lamb for your salvation? This is all that salvation is. This is how salvation is brought to us. If you see that you're a sinner and you want to come to God, you simply trust God who sent Jesus to die for his people's sins. And he will receive you on that basis. Then you will join in the praises of the church. And you will say with the whole church, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. John was impressed by the great number that is seen here before the Lord. Can you, wouldn't that be encouraging? I mean, if it was in that time of history, near to the time when he lived, to be able to see all of the worshipers and the vision that were kind of, you know, bringing their praises to God. That, that would be a great encouragement. As before, he sees the angels also joining in, the elders of the church, the ministers who are represented by the four living creatures before the throne, leading the worshipers. Verse 11 and 12, all the angels stood around the throne and the elders and the four living creatures and fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom, thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. With these words, they declare that God is worthy to receive from this whole company of worshipers blessing. It ought to be ascribed to him and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might forever. He's always worthy of that praise that no longer, no matter how long we continue to praise him for his greatness, we'll never exhaust the praises that are due to him because of his glory and wisdom and blessing and all that there is to him. We will be finding out his greatness for all eternity and have fresh occasions to continue bringing forth praise and glory to our God. It's the, the amazement and awe of him will never cease within us. It will only be increased and expanded as we grow in eternal future. But who is this great multitude that John sees in the vision? We've already said generally, it's, it's the church, church that has been redeemed. But who are they more specifically? Well, John is asked this question. This is what I mentioned in the introduction. One of the elders out of the vision comes to him, verse 13, and one of the elders answered saying to me, who are these arrayed in white robes and where did they come from? That's, so that's the elder that, that comes to him. You, 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 you uh, see how you know, he, want, he wants to know, you know, okay, where did these guys come from? John, wisely and humbly, <laughs> says in verse 14, you know, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Though he was an apostle, he does not know, nor does he put on airs as if he knew. He knows from prophecies in the Old Testament that such questions 
are not asked to quiz him, but to draw attention to something that is going to be revealed to him. So he says, you know, you tell me. The answer is very wonderful. He says, verse 14, continuing on with verse 14, these are the ones who came out of the great tribulation. Now, Ori explained to you that the great tribulation, according to Scripture, was the time that John and the church was already stepping into at this time. It was a time that Jesus described in Matthew 24, 21, when he spoke of the fall of Jerusalem that was to happen in that generation. He said it would happen in that generation. He said, for then there will be great tribulation such as has not been since the beginning of the world until this time wherever shall be. I explained how that 1.1 million Jews were to die in this great tribulation. 97,000 that survived taken into slavery. And how God delivered myriads at Jerusalem, tens of thousands, 144,000. You don't necessarily think that's an exact number, but it's probably a fairly accurate number, an approximate number. They were sealed so that the leaders in the church might continue and the church not be wiped out. Notice carefully the language here, though. What does it say? It says that they are the ones who come out of the great tribulation. I was very interested to check out, you know, when I saw that in English, to check out what, what is this, what is the tense here? And uh, because it appears that they are not kept from it. They were in it and then they're coming out of it. And it actually is a present participle and could be faithfully and fully translated the ones who are coming out of the great tribulation. And I consulted a commentary after noting that and saw that um, Leon Morris mentioned that that was a good way to interpret, to translate this. He believes it's a later time in history, but these ones that John sees are the ones who are coming out of the great tribulation. These worshipers then, again, are not kept from it, nor have they yet been brought out of it. But they're being, they're going to be brought out of it. They're coming out of it. They're to come out of it. Don't miss this. What's the point of that? This great multitude that is worshiping is in the middle of the great tribulation. And they're worshiping God with ardent praises in the middle of these times of horrendous things that are happening. That is glorious. That is the power of God's Spirit at work in the lives of His people who, when persecuted, bring forth praise and adoration to the living God. This is glorious. Praising God even in the midst of great suffering. They are overcomers because they have washed their garments white in the blood of the Lamb. Verse 14 again. Still verse 14. These are the ones who come out of the great tribulation, who are coming out of the great tribulation, and washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. That's past tense. Washed their robes. They're coming out. They have already washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. They have already been washed past. They have already made their garments white past also. So they made their garments white, washing them in the blood of the Lamb. Now there's one of those curious pictures. What happens if you wash a garment in blood? It doesn't come out white. 
This is a vision of the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sins and makes us white as snow when we're washed by the blood of the Lamb, when we trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins. This is exactly what the blood of the cross is said to do. In all of its horror and gore, the blood of the cross makes us holy and white and pure before our God. This is a beautiful, beautiful picture. We're cleansed from all sin and defilement. That's why these people are praising God in the middle of tribulation, of great tribulation. It's because of this that they are His dedicated worshipers. Verse 15, Therefore, important word, because they have been washed by the blood of the Lamb, therefore they are before the throne of God and serve. That's the word that's related to the word liturgy, like this liturgical kind of a service, worshiping Him. Uh, they serve Him day and night in His temple. Not an earthly temple, but the temple that is above is where they worship Him, but I believe they being on earth. This is Psalm 72, right? All around the world, people are worshiping night and day. They're worshiping the kingdom of Christ that is to come. This is, this is what is happening here. The church, those who are redeemed, come before God with praise for their salvation. That's what they're doing. They come even when they're in the middle of tribulation. They know that God will bring them out because they have been cleansed by Jesus Christ. Though they walk in the midst of trouble, they know that God will deliver them. Amen. They are in the great tribulation now, but look at the glorious future that the Lord has for them. Look at how it's described. First, that God himself will dwell with them. From the middle of verse 15. And he who sits on the throne will dwell among them. Now that is what salvation is all about. We're saved so that we can dwell with God. We're saved so that we can come to God. We are reconciled so that we might live, as we've been seeing in our morning services, in his glorious house forever. Jesus brings us to the, his majestic, gracious Father, the one that we will never be less than enamored with, the one who will always delight us. We will be made fit to dwell with him, and we will dwell with him. He will dwell in the midst of us. And already he does spiritually. The Father and the Son are with us, manifesting themselves to us by the Spirit of God. Having been redeemed by Christ, we will never lack a thing or have anything to spoil our happiness. Look at verse 16. They shall never hunger anymore, nor thirst anymore. The sun shall not strike them, nor any heat. Sounds kind of like Psalm 21 that I read at communion today, doesn't it? And we, we sang um, another... Uh, psalm that had similar lines to that. I can't remember which one it was. But this is the future that we have in Christ. It's already true in a way. Even for those who are still in the great tribulation, God is dwelling with them. He is present with them. And they, are, they, they will not hunger or thirst anymore in a spiritual way. Being saved from sin, the bulk of their sorrows are behind them and their future is bright. But we know that in the future it will be absolutely true that even physically they will not hunger or thirst or be hurt at all. The sun striking us representing that. 
as we worship God, even in our suffering, we should always keep in mind that be the glorious future that we've been promised. You talked about that this morning, how important it is to see where we're going, the house that we're going to, the joy, Jesus, because of the joy that was set before him, persevered in the way he, he endured, and we endure when we keep before us the glory of what is promised. Look at the reason that they'll never hunger or thirst. Verse 17, for the lamb who is in the midst of the throne will shepherd them and lead them to living fountains of waters. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Here's an extraordinary picture again. What do we have here? A lamb shepherding a multitude. Is that what lambs do? Is the lamb the shepherd? Does the lamb get up and shepherd? This is a lamb shepherding a whole multitude of people and doing it quite well. He leads them to fresh waters. He leads them to living waters. What did Jesus say? I'll give you living water and you'll never thirst again. That's what he said to the woman at the well. She said, oh, I won't have to come to the well. He said, no, that's not what I'm talking about. But and I believe that's what is really emphasized here. But again, it is true in a physical sense after the resurrection. The lamb is here the one that does the shepherding and the leading. He leads them. Lambs don't do that unless the lamb is the Lord Jesus Christ. Under the care of this lamb, we will never hunger or thirst. And look, God himself will wipe away every tear from their eyes. What a compassionate father he is. We go through necessary suffering as long as we're in this world while the gospel goes forth into this fallen world. But not without a compassionate father and not without a compassionate son of the father, a mediator, our Lord Jesus a priest to us. The church, when John sees it in his vision, is in the midst of tribulation, but they are not without a compassionate father and a compassionate lamb. They're coming out of it, and they know that God will bring them out. He has sealed the 144,000 of their Jewish brethren because he is preserving his church, and that makes them very glad. That's one of the reasons that they're worshiping, because they see that God is working to preserve his people and that he gave them that if it's all is uh, think it is at that time period Jesus had given them this prophecy and they had indeed been spared from that great destruction that the church might not perish and now I have a great question for you who live in this present time are you part of the great multitude today whose praises come up to the throne of God and to the Lamb you can't just go to God. It's got to go to God and the Lamb because God is the Father of Christ and no one knows the Father except those who know the Son and no one knows the Son except those who know the Father. Do you praise God through Christ for His saving work that He brought in Christ? Have you washed your garments white in the blood of the Lamb? You can't wash them any other way. It's only through faith in Jesus. Have you trusted in Him then for the forgiveness of your sins? Are you part of that great congregation from all nations and tribes and tongues that comes to praise him for his salvation all over the world and to ascribe to him blessing and honor and glory and praise? And if you are, are you praising him as you ought? Are you serving him? Are you trusting him? Talked about this morning, searching things this morning. Is the world more important to you than the kingdom of God? your comfort, 
what people think of you, whatever. Are you rejoicing in the glorious future that you have with him? Do you praise him even in times of tribulation? Even in times of great tribulation? Let's stand and and call on his name. Oh Lord, our God, we praise you and we thank you for you are our God and you have redeemed us. We praise you, Lord Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We see the world before you here, people from every tribe and tongue and nation and language gathered together praising you even in these early days all over the world and still to our day from all over the world. We thank you, Lord, that there is a great multitude whose praises come up to heaven and bring glory and honor to you. And there are our brothers and sisters who have already gone up to heaven who are also praising you and and before you, O Lord, in whatever way they are. We praise you, Father, for the glory that you have that is a glory that is deserving of, that you are deserving of, of, that we would bring ascribe to you glory and honor and power and blessing and wisdom and might and strength. You are a great and mighty God and there's no one like you. Thank you, Lord, that you have washed us white through the blood of the Lamb. Thank you that we have complete forgiveness of sins and justification. We praise you, O Lord, for the hope that we have, even that you will wipe away every tear, that you are a compassionate and merciful Father, We praise you, Lord, that we will never hunger and never thirst. Truly, that is already so in the way that is most important. We thank you, Lord, that even if in this world we are deprived of water and food, that we are not hungry or thirsty in the sense that we are before you, O Lord, and that we have your blessing and the assurance of it. We thank you, Lord, for the hope of the resurrection also, that the day will come when even these things will be no more, these physical sufferings. We praise you for the hope that we have. Oh, Father, send us forth with a greater joy in our salvation. We've spent much time today looking at these things about the blessing that we have in your kingdom. And we pray that we would go forth enriched with these truths, that they would not fall on us in a way that will not be helpful to us. Father, we pray that they would be very helpful. Strengthen us, O Lord, that we may glorify you. Help us to be an encouragement to each other's faith to build one another up in your grace. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Receive the blessing of the Lord our God. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us. To him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen.